Welcome to Climate News Weekly. I'm joined by Darren Howe and Julio Friedman. Hi, guys. Always a pleasure. Good to see you again. So we've got a number of stories, as always, in a couple of different sectors, and we will start with the weather, specifically the weather in California, where it has been very, very, very wet. Julio, how does the weather in California compare to historical averages, and what should we make of this here on Climate News Weekly? Right. So at the very highest level, this stuff was predictable and predicted. One of the consequences of climate change is you just put more energy into the atmosphere, and things like the jet stream move around and storms get more acute. So this is a l- in line with the sort of things that were expected. When you're living through it, it feels kind of different. In Los Angeles, they typically get 12 inches of rain a year. They got eight inches of rain in three days. The city of Los Angeles ain't exactly configured to receive that. So we are seeing people dislocated. We're seeing buildings having troubles. We're seeing flooding. We're seeing landslides, in particular from Santa Barbara up to Big Sur. A lot of landslide problems blocking the freeway, $11 billion worth of damage. Mm. Um, so there's there's real consequences to what's going on here. What is not clear is if this is the new normal or if this is still just a, an extreme acute event that's part of a chronic condition. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that these kinds of events, which we're seeing with increasing regularity, makes me wonder is whether you know municipal planners or regional planners will start thinking differently about the costs of major infrastructure projects. Because when you hit a storm like this and you have billions and billions of dollars of damage, putting in you know water infrastructure, for example, that would capture some of that excess at times of extreme flooding which is a huge project. People have been talking about that. Does that start to happen? Will we somehow see more of that? I don't know. What do you think? Well, it's an interesting question. Last year, we had similar kind of weather, and a lot of people were complaining that we weren't gathering the water and replenishing groundwater tables. In fact, California has done quite a bit of that. It's maybe 10% of what we could do, but it's still a start, you know? So maybe we should be doing more of it. That's fine. One of the converse points of this is that these kind of circumstances have replenished an awful lot of the snowpack. So there's less concern about drought and natural recharges happening at a higher rate. So it's hard to understand these trade-offs, but I do think, to your point specifically, it really helps planners focus the mind. Mm -hmm. Water infrastructure is a perennial, but it's not necessarily urgent. If you think you're going to have another 10 of these in the next 20 years, then you start thinking differently about the infrastructure projects in general. And that means you put more money, you get the permits, you do more work. We'll see how that develops over time. So in European news, we have the EU aiming to cut 90% of their emissions by 2040, which is a new target for the EU. And they've laid out a goal and and a plan as to to how to get there with a number of pillars. So Julia, what are these pillars and, and what is the likely cost of this new target? So God bless the EU. Um... This kind of planning is something that should be happening more broadly. And this level of ambition is kind of the right level of ambition. So they've said by 2040, not by 2050, they want to have 90% net reductions. When I say net reductions, that means a combination of reductions and removals. Mm -hmm. And that is in the documents, clearly, you need both. That is also welcome. They look at all the different key sectors, agriculture, aviation, transportation, electricity, heavy industry, like they really do a comprehensive job. And they identify sort of eight 
pillars and a whole set of actions around those pillars. The technology mixes are not a surprise. We're going to need more efficiency. We're going to need more uh, renewable power. We're going to need a lot of vehicle electrification and industrial electrification. These things are all in there. For my money, the headlines look at the carbon management piece of this. And they've got 280 million tons a year of carbon management by 2040. And a very big piece of that is in carbon removal. About a third of that is a combination of direct air capture and biomass with carbon capture. Very little of it is actually from fossil emissions. And the fossil fraction kind of stays the same. But right now, they've got like 3 million tons. So if we're going to 3 million tons to 300 million tons, that's a factor of 100 growth in 15 years. That's a lot of money. The last thing that I want to mention quickly in terms of the high-level targets, they point out that they need a lot of infrastructure to get the job done. They haven't laid out the details around that. They're like, I don't know exactly how we'll get it permitted. We'll, we'll make commissions. We'll put more money in the infrastructure funds. Like That's fine. But they did put a top-line cost on this, which is helpful. And the estimate is broadly 3% of GDP. Interestingly, they've done a bit of cost-benefit analysis around that too. They look at that compared to the costs of buying fossil fuels, compared to the cost of climate impacts, compared to the geopolitical risks. So they try to get their hands around it. These are uncertain. These are not clear. But they basically try to make the case that says, hey, 3% of GDP is a cheap date compared to what business as usual looks like. So EU's contribution to business as usual is the thing that you'd have to get right to run a rigorous cost-benefit analysis, which is very hard to do, and also much lower than, say, other large emitting regions would be. So I wonder how they actually did that math. <laughs> Again, the the document's 600 pages long. Feel free, dig in. There's, there's a lot of stuff in there. Julio, can I ask you one more question on this? So you're a carbon removal expert, and... As when you think about that scale up factor on carbon removal that's aspired to in this in this new goal, what are the realistic paths that you see, if, if any, to achieve it? What kinds of technologies are we talking about? Like we're living in a world today where the, the company that's removed the most CO2, right, has removed about 7,000 total tons. And that's Charm Industrials, right? Much larger scale removal technologies are, are in the works, but they're not actually removing yet. So thoughts on that? Sure. So let me try to explain this in three rather different ways. One preamble, though, the carbon management piece is combined carbon capture and storage from point sources, CO2 removal, and CO2 utilization. And in the industrial carbon management plan, they do a clear job breaking all that out. So it's not simply CO2 removal in this context. So in terms of technology pathways, we actually know the full mix. We're going to do some nature-based stuff with soils and trees. We're going to do some direct air capture. We're going to do bioenergy with CCS. We're going to explore new stuff. Like We know that that's what the mix looks like. All of them have hair. All of them have got to scale up in profound and astonishing ways. Second, if you know you have to scale up a factor of 100 in 15 years, very little of that will happen in the first five years. You need to lay the infrastructure. You need to build the enterprise. You need to get it right. You need to have standards, all this other work. So I'm fine with that. Last but not least, you need money. Like Microsoft isn't going to do this for us. This is not voluntary companies. Ultimately, this is going to be a compliance market and government procurement. There's going to be mandates. It's going to like you can't 
do that much scale up on the back of wishes and charity, you simply need mandates, regulations, and government expense. Yeah. So on the topic of expense and who should pay for things, there are two stories this week that are apropos. One is in California and one is in the UK. Darren, do you want to tell us a little bit about this SoCal story and heat pumps in California? I would love to. Essentially, the story uh, here about who should pay for heat pump installations is around the CPUC's recent decision with Southern California Edison, or SCE. The CPUC is the California Public Utilities Commission. Essentially, they are the regulatory that, among other things, reviews utility proposals for how much they can charge customers and decides whether that's appropriate or not. So what had happened here was SCE had a plan to spend up to $744 million on heat pumps, electrical panel upgrades, and associated grid improvements to accelerate the deployment of the more energy-efficient infrastructure. The CPUC decided that this plan did not sufficiently protect ratepayers from increases in their electricity bills. And as a result of that, they decided to reject this proposal. The reason why this is uh, a very interesting topic to think about is it gets down to that heart of that question of who should pay for these upgrades. These deployments do require expense. And Oh, yeah. While there are some legitimate concerns around increasing electricity rates for customers, climate folks have been trying for a long time to get utilities to use the resources to deploy infrastructure like this. So you've kind of got two parties that both have valid points and you know, you're seeing this kind of argument happen live right now. So on one side, we've already talked about the challenges with increasing uh, electricity rates. But on the other side, you do want to have utilities investing in, in the future and, and using the resources to move things forward. The other thing to note is that the Sierra Club and the uh, NRDC had estimated that the proposed rate increases were not unreasonable. They estimated that they would have probably raised electricity bills by about a dollar a month over the next several years, which is pretty small compared to most folks' bills. And in terms of the benefits, the savings from these deployments would probably reduce electricity bills by $7 per year. The, the savings primarily come from being more efficient in using your electricity and gas. So you're, you're getting away from paying for natural gas. And because heat pumps are far more efficient at moving heat around, you're not doing like electric resistive heating. It consumes much less electricity for every unit of warming or cooling that you want. One thing that I found really interesting in this Canary Media article was some of the structural issues behind why you have this, this challenge. Traditionally, electricity grid and gas pipeline upgrades are treated as capital expenses. And what you can do with that is you can amortize the, the, re- the recovery over decades. You can increase people's bills by very, very little because you're doing it over a long period of time. In theory, that's why it would make sense for SoCal Edison to make these huge purchases because they can amortize it. Exactly. They, they're a monopoly and they can amortize it over time. But these non-traditional uh, electrification investments like heat pumps, like these panel upgrades, for some reason, have to be paid through shorter-term cost recovery measures. So what that looks like to ratepayers is like a sudden increase in rates, and that's what people respond to. Well, there's another story across the pond related to who pays. So in the UK, there are plans currently for boiler makers to meet production targets for heat pumps that they sell, so about 4% that they would be required to sell or be penalized by about 3,000 pounds for every single item that they fall short of that target. 
So Rishi Sunak is poised to drop these plans and to to cede to the demands of the lobbying group that represents these companies. What do we make of this? Is this is this significant? And if so, you know, why? So as the prime minister of the United Kingdom, I think this mostly reflects Rishi Sunak's political challenges. He's trying to figure out how to get scrape together every last vote he can. And this is part of that package. He thinks that lower ambition on climate is a winning strategy for him in the ballot box. We will see if that's true or not. It, It is the case that a huge fraction of electricity in the United Kingdom, a huge fraction of gas goes to keeping houses warm. Heat pumps are a good way to actually really reduce the net footprint and the net cost. But like everything else, you get into the specifics of it and who who pays for what what's the appropriate standard how will this affect the jobs behind the boiler makers which are union jobs and how does that affect the politics you you pull on one of these threads it becomes messy quickly uh, overall this discussion the eu discussion both of them reflect the fact that our conversations about climate are maturing it is starting to get to a point where a question like well is it reasonable to put this surcharge on boiler makers like it is, in fact, the level at which you have the discussion. And you have the energy secretary, Claire Catino, who's saying that it's very unlikely that any of these boiler makers would actually have to pay the fine in the first place because the percent of heat pumps that are sold in the market is already 4%. <laughs> so it, it does beg the question, like, is this whole conversation just sort of an easy political win for, for Sunak versus anything that really matters? Well, again, time will tell if it's a political win at all. Super interesting. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you, James. And that covers it for this week's Climate News Weekly. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.